American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. In the home, a battle scene um, could celebrate the survival of a loved one at that battle or, conversely, serve as a memorial to one who died. Um, I think in the Holzer book, um, The Union Image, if you go back to one little sentence, Courier and Ives produced about 163 different prints relating to the Civil War over the four-year period. And that doesn't include some of the sentimental subjects that he did about war. But it's basically one a week. And that's not a major proportion of the output of the firm during that period. So it's... um, you know, they took advantage of the market, but didn't overplay it. They didn't try to um, flood the market. But, of course, there were other publishers. So there was a steady um, amount of these prints, but it, wasn't, um, it didn't dominate any one publisher's output. Since the early 19th century, print publishers had issued memorial prints representing a tomb or gravestone on which a consumer could record the name of the deceased along with birth and death dates. Nathaniel Courier issued dozens of different prints, almost custom designed for specific losses in a family. So, for example, in the pre-war period, um, there might be a gravestone with a mother and two children. They would be mourning the death of the father, or it could be a father and two children, and that would be mourning the death of a mother. During the Civil War, similar prints were used, um, were issued, including the soldier's grave. And here you see how the widow, mother, or daughter could, um, was the featured mourner, and there was space on this elaborate stone to record information about the death of the soldier. Other publishers, including Caldwell and Company in New York, followed suit. And this is a far larger, more elaborate um, memorial print, but functions in the same way. In the absence of a grave to visit, which was the sad truth for so many families, a print such as this could um, serve as a surrogate for um, an actual grave that families would want to visit. So it's really a way to memorialize um, the soldiers. After the war, publishers in major print publishing centers often published memorials, kind of big collective memorials to soldiers who died in the war. This one was um, published in Boston, dedicated to the soldiers of Company A of the 56th Regiment. Um, Such memorials as this were often marketed not just to the families um, whose uh, male relatives are memorialized on these images, but... Um, also to chapters of the Grand Army of the Republic. And I remember going into G.A.R. Hall in Worcester 35 years ago, and they had a whole series of Civil War prints um, on the walls, the series published by Louis Prang um, in 1886-87. But that would be another place that um, memorials such as this would be placed. Uh, Courier and Ives and... their contemporaries issued a variety of sentimental prints and suggestive of this genre is the soldier's home, the vision. So, uh, and under the poem, the image, 
Under the image, the poem reads, Ever of him who at his country's call went forth to to war in freedom's sacred name, she thinks in waking hours and dreams all are filled with his image on the field of fame. She sees her hero foremost in the fight, bearing the glorious banner of the free, triumphing o'er the traitor's boasted might, then home returning, crowned with victory. And um, so this is kind of a common trope, and her husband is in this print is going to come home alive and um, as, a, as, a, as a victorious hero. The American Patriot's Dream, the night before the battle, presents an opposite view. Here the soldier is asleep, dreaming of his safe return home to the arms of his wife and son and parents, and the little boy is actually dressed in a soldier's uniform. Noteworthy is his transformation from a regular soldier to an officer. So the um, image in the dream, he has epaulets um, instead of he's no longer a foot soldier. A transformation explained in the verse below. And dreams that on the field of fame he reaps, renown and honors which he hastes to share. And the poem concludes, Fond dreamer, may thy blissful vision be a true foreshadowing of the fates to thee. Like most of Courier and Ives' prints, uh, the designer is anonymous. Uh, The soldier's pose in this print is particularly awkward, and I think the rifle is out of scale, but there's probably some gun expert here who could dispute that. Um, What I find rather comforting, or at least I would hope that would be comforting on the domestic front in the 19th century, is that this camp scene in the background is a rather peaceful, you know, just men sitting around the campfire. Um, For a change, um, there's really no blood or gore in this one. Uh, Thomas Nass by now has become almost a household word name to you. And he did two um, Civil War prints for Courier and Ives. And so this is an exception to the rule of almost uniformly anonymous prints published by the firm. Um, So here you have the commander-in-chief depicting a child as a military leader surrounded by his tools of war. You might notice that his cannon are made out of wine bottles. Nice touch. Um, The domestic blockade on my near side shows a harassed Irish housemaid defending her kitchen from marauding children who are all also dressed up in military uniform, the girl waving the flag, which is an ever-present symbol um, in visual imagery of the time. These prints suggest the impact of war on children, as you often see them playing the roles of their fathers um, dressed in military garb, whether male or female, which I think is an interesting point. Um, For those interested in material culture, in addition to visual culture, prints like this, I mean, this is just a wonderful pile of kitchen stuff from the middle decades of the 19th century. And someone else would probably be able to tell you all about these wonderful little milk buckets and coal buckets and so on. So it's pretty neat. Um, all of the print publishers, and there were quite a few operating in you know, the mid-19th century, 
Um, all of the publishers issued portraits of military and political figures in very, very large numbers. And I'm not going to run you through a whole bunch of images of military leaders. Just um, This is a very nice um, engraving of Grant. Uh, it's a steel plate engraving. It was relatively um, difficult to engrave images like this, very hard to ink and print. They fed um, a rather well-to-do audience. Um, this one's nice because it has vignettes around it relating to um, battle um, scenes. Uh, but there were just hundreds of these published. So I'm just using one to stand for a huge collective um, output of print publishers. These would have been found in homes as well as public spaces such as men's clubs, hotels, barber shops, you name it. Um, this is a print um, of a naval battle of the Monitor and the Merrimack designed by Charles Parsons who worked for the Endicott firm uh, beginning in the 1840s. Uh, this shows, of course, the battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack. And a similar print published by another contemporary, the Hatch Company, is actually on display in the Silver Gallery, um, together with a piece of silver awarded to um, the, arch uh, the naval architect and engineer, Erickson, who designed the engines that ran the ironclad um, ship. What's particularly interesting about this print are the vignettes surrounding the central scene, which, of course, you can't really see clearly. But um, clockwise from the upper right, the roundels depict a sectional view of the Merrimack, which is the southern ship, um, and the wardroom, wheelhouse, engine room, turret machinery, interior of the gun tower, the captain's cabin, and the berth deck of the monitor. And above the uh, battle is a portrait of John Erickson, the designer of the engine, which is depicted um, to the right of the flag. So this really gives you a lot of information about this ship and about really a whole class of naval vessels. The Endicott firm published ship portraits as well. And one of my favorites is this hand-colored lithograph of the Onondaga which was an ironclad vessel launched in 1863 and decommissioned in 1865. It was 220 feet long, 50 feet across, and all of the ironclad ships were shallow in terms of draft since they operated in coastal waters. This was only 13 feet deep. And the print shows it in rough water, which I think didn't happen very often, because I don't think with that 13-foot draft um, this would operate very well. Uh, Parsons had started his professional career as an apprentice in the lithographic firm of George and William Endicott, which began a couple of years actually before Nathaniel Courier's firm started in 1835. Uh, he went on to work for several other New York firms, obviously, including Courier and Ives, and then he... Uh, ended up his professional career, I believe, as the art editor of Harper's New Monthly Magazine. Um, the Endicott firm 
sold um, ship portraits like this one to officers and sailors who served on these ships. He, the firm somehow got the names of all of those people and had a targeted campaign, which I find quite fascinating. None of us know, none of the, on the curatorial side, most of us really don't know what the audience for all of these prints are. Um, there are no business records to speak of. They all got destroyed in urban fires. Lithography firms had volatile um, chemicals on hand, so, uh, and they, these shops got burned out along with every other commercial um, firms in these huge urban fires. Um, so we don't know as much as we'd like about how these prints were published. Um, most, the, I think all of the Civil War prints we've seen, at least in my presentation so far, have been published as separate prints. There are two couple of um, important exceptions, um, which I'll show you with, that, dem that show prints published in um, portfolios. One is John Nepp Ressler's album of the campaign of 1861 in Western Virginia, which was printed in Cincinnati by Ergot Forbrigger and company in 1862. And we're going to see a couple of lithographs from this portfolio later this afternoon. Russler was born about 1826 in Baden, Germany. Um, he came over with his family, as so many other Germans did in 1848, to escape the increasing militarization in Germany. Um, at the time of the Civil War, he was a resident of Cincinnati, Ohio, where he enlisted on June 15th in the 47th Ohio Volunteer Infantry. He listed his occupation at the time as an artist. He received a discharge for disability on February 8, 1862, sadly, uh, for the loss of his left eye. So, um, but somehow he carried on, and it was after he was um, discharged from the Army that he apparently drew these um, scenes on stone in Cincinnati for publication as a portfolio. There's a, the, his series consists of 20 plates, and... Um, one person who's commented on these refers to them more as landscape images than Civil War images. And, you know, clearly, Ressler loved um, the landscape that he was, that he was depicting. Uh, this one is called Crossing to Fayetteville and shows a river crossing and um, soldiers waiting to get across. The other important portfolio I suspect many of you um, know quite a bit about, Winslow Homer's campaign sketches published in 1863 in Boston. Homer drew the images from life while working as a sketch artist for Harper's Weekly. Several of these images, such as foraging, are rather comic and portray, I think, a lighter side of camp life. I think, however, my favorite from the series is the letter for home. I find this very poignant um, as a female volunteer transcribes a wounded soldier's words for him from his hospital bed. These images are not specific to time or place, making them also very different from the battle scenes we've seen or from wrestlers that are so specific um, in their intent. The publisher uh, Louis Prang anticipated that the series of prints 
issued in an illustrated paper wrapper would be used as holiday gifts. And there is um, campaign sketches was advertised in the New York Tribune around Christmas time with a price tag of a dollar and fifty cents. The wrapper to uh, this set of six prints suggests that a future second portfolio of six prints would be issued. Um, that apparently never happened, suggesting that the sales for Homer's efforts were not very robust. And I. I would love to hear anyone comment about the appropriateness of these as a Christmas or a New Year's present. I, I just don't understand it, but I maybe am kind of limited. It just, I don't know. It seems very odd, but I, things were odd then. I don't know. They're still odd. Um, prints about the Civil War were published in the years immediately following its conclusion. Typical are several sentimental prints, including the empty sleeve designed by Adelaide R. Sawyer and engraved by John um, Butter or Buttry. His name is spelled B-U-T-T-R-E. And there's someone here who was really interested in um, this print. But it shows, um, well, a poem on the subject of the print was written by David Barker and published in an advertising pamphlet for a portrait print of Martha Washington also engraved and published by Butter. The stare of the uniformed soldier over his toddler's head I find very haunting. It contrasts to the child's curiosity about what might or might not be up his father's sleeve. And I, I think this is just really a touching um, print. It was published in 1866, so just immediately after the war. I think it's important to note that um, engravings such as this uh, were far more difficult to create than lithographs. Lithographs, um, particularly in a hand of an artist, can be drawn quite freely on the lithography stone. Um, there are cautions about not putting handprints on it and getting grease on the stone and otherwise destroying the image. But engravings take a whole lot more skill. Um, you have your designer on one hand and then the professional engraver on the other who is charged with interpreting a drawing um, for this other matrix. Um, inking an engraved plate is slow, tedious, and difficult. And printing is pretty straightforward, but um, it's a, a much more a time-consuming process than a lithograph. So you do get these engravings being made after the war that still refer to the war. Um, for example, um, F.O.C. Darley did a pair of prints, one called The Departure, which you see. And here the woman is um, you know, trying to clasp her um, husband as he goes off to war. The children are, you know, trying to get at him as well. And the woman's mother, presumably, is holding the, the wife around the waist to try to pull her away and let her husband leave. Um, happily, uh, this soldier comes home. And it's so exciting, she overturns her chair as her husband walks into the house. You can kind of create a narrative of what's going on. Um, and everything is a much happier scene. Um, these two prints were published in Portland, Maine in 1873. They p 
possibly were published earlier, and Vickery got hold of the plates and published a second edition. I find it hard to believe that these waited um, eight years uh, to be published. Those at home will kind of get away from prints now and turn to a few maps. Those at home would want to know where their men were. Um, and this is a, an, an amazing survivor of the Civil War. This little battle plan of um, the battle near Leesburg, Virginia, was published in Richmond, Virginia in October of 1861 by a printer who had worked in Washington, D.C., but had Confederate sympathies, so he uh, fled into Virginia uh, not long after the war began. And this item, uh, this is just remarkable, this item, this map was picked up at the Battle of New Bern, North Carolina a year later in 1862. Um, a Worcester resident found it. He presented it to the Worcester Historical Society, which in turn gave it to the Antiquarian Society. So the provenance of it is really quite intriguing. And all of that information is recorded in that little label in the upper right-hand corner, um, or your left. Um, this is a relief cut. This is done on wood um, with type inserted for the labeling. Um, so kind of primitive. Uh, the engraver publisher um, was... Uh, Oh, I forget his first name. His last name was um, Baumgarten. And he um, published several of these. I think there are three or four that are recorded in, the, in the, one of the massive Civil War bibliographies. Louis Prang, whom we, who did the Winslow Homer um, uh, campaign sketches, issued this balloon map of the southern states which is kind of an amazing perspective um, in the days before Google Earth. So it's, it's looking from you know, the mid-Atlantic down towards Florida. So it's, the map is completely distorted. But Prang published quite a number of these maps. And they would have been you know, used at home, or, but also probably posted in Mail spaces such as um, barber shops or taverns, hotels, um, anywhere where people were curious about the war and its progress. Prang published quite a few Civil War maps. Um, he found it was apparently found that it was a, a good genre. Uh, this is a, a more, I think, recognizable map of the Southern stage. States compiled by Charles O. Uh, Perrine. Perrine. Um, he published this map in several editions, and various in the different editions, the towns and battle sites, which are highlighted in red. This you really can't see it on the reproduction, um, but those would change as the war changed. Looks like you're ready to pop out of the chair, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, these okay. Uh, maps are great. And these are quite large. Um, the balloon map is like two by three feet. And I think this is of a similar size. Um, so these are substantial publications. 
Um, John B. Batchelder is quite um, tied to the Battle of Gettysburg, and he did any number of maps and views. Uh, Batchelder also did landscapes of the White Mountains. He did city views that were published in the 1850s, but he really paid attention to Gettysburg. And this is one of his earlier efforts done in 1863. But um, for the next few years, he continued to um, research the Battle of Gettysburg, talking to veterans, um, walking every square inch of the battlefield. And then he produced a mammoth painting, which is in the New Hampshire Historical Society and probably runs from this quarter, corner to that kind of break in the sheetrock. Not quite as tall, but you know, a huge, wide, panoramic painting that would, take, would have taken him ages to, um, to, to do. This, is, um, this map is basically a combination of a topographical map with a bird's eye view perspective. It's quite an uncommon genre. And there are a number of signatures of uh, participants in the battle who attested to the accuracy of it. And a final map is General Grant's campaign war map published by the Boston lithographer John H. Bufford in 1865. And so this just shows the military actions between Richmond and Petersburg. And in the fine print, which you absolutely cannot read, but I could, um, he noted that uh, below the map that he wanted, quote, agents in all the camps and throughout the loyal states to sell this map, pictures, and photographs. And so Bufford was using um, this map to help market his other productions. During the antebellum period, music abounded in homes and public spaces. One cultural historian wrote, quote, in the two spirited decades before the Civil War, America burst into melody. Concerts occurred frequently in churches, town halls, museums, taverns, and even Masonic halls. Itinerant singing masters roamed the countryside teaching music to children and adults alike. A piano in the parlor, the center of home life for middle and upper class families became common. Composers and poets filled Civil War homes with music. Music composed for military bands was commonly published in versions for the piano, and music publishers often issued music scores um, with pictorial covers, as you see here. These are a treasure trove, for they are an alternative to the separately published print as a way to display an image in the home. Music scores could be displayed on a music stand, on the music holder that's part of the piano, or on the piano itself. Hundreds, if not thousands, of individual titles appeared during the war. Cincinnati, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston were centers of music publishing in the north, Richmond and New Orleans in the south. And given the paper shortage in the south, it is surprising that anything as seemingly frivolous as music was published at all. Um, but the publication of any southern music suggests just how integral music was to maintaining a sense of patriotism. Various types of images appeared on these covers that cost about double the cost of music scores published without these decorated covers. There are, for example, images of soldiers marching, as you have here in the advance guards march. So you have a few scouts marching in front of the main group of soldiers. Albert Berg 
composed the Advance Guards March um, in 1861. Grand Union March on the Potomac, also published that year, shows the Army marching in formation with a very distant view of the, of the United States Capitol in the distance. Civil Bellum, or Brother and the Fallen Dragoon, tells the tale of one soldier shooting a solitary scout aiming at a locket on his chest. Remember you saw in the, this morning um, a soldier looking at a locket? Well, this soldier was told, aim at the locket. So he did. Um, it was gleaming in the moonlight. And it was his first kill in the war. So his companion said, well, you should go and get a souvenir. So he went and got the souvenir, which was um, a locket with a portrait of a woman. And then he realized he had shot his brother-in-law. And the, in the locket was the portrait of his um, sister who was going to marry this person. So it's a very, very sad tale. Um, as you know, know, the war pitted fathers against sons and brothers against brothers. This poignant piece written by Charles, by Charles Dawson Shanley tells the story well in verses set to music composed by Joseph P. Webster. Um, for whatever reason, I did read the lyrics somewhat closely on this. And the cover illustration actually is very carefully based on the text. Sometimes one is done rather independently of the other. In this case, it's um, very, very close. The cover to Charles Grobe's Battle of Port Royal has both a dramatic view of the battle and a detailed map of the coastal region. Commodore Winslow's grand victory commemorates the victory of the Kearsarge over the Confederate raider Alabama in June of 1864. The Alabama had been, had been successful in destroying much shipping in the Atlantic, and this battle took place off of Cherbourg, France. France. Military figures um, were often depicted on covers of sheet music. This is Jackson's General Hooker's Marching Quickstep, and this is a piece of music that might have been um, in its band-arranged form performed at a dress parade or other military gatherings. And remember, we saw a print of a portrait of an equestrian general in the background. I mean, this is the kind of image that actually you could frame this and put it up on the wall. Uh, Joseph Hooker had the name Fighting Joe, and I think that he's characterized as that in this image. Much sentimental music was published during the war years. Typical is Wait Love Until the War is Over. Written from the soldier's perspective, he tells of his anguish when his beloved says in response to his marriage proposal, Wait Love Until the War is Over. Although published in 1864, the song anticipates the end of the war and concludes with the two lovers meeting um, after the war and getting married. But other portraits um, commemorated soldiers who died, such as The Old Flag Will Triumph Yet, composed by Henry Whittemore in memory of Colonel Thornton F. Broadhead of the 1st Michigan Cavalry. And this image is probably based on a carte de visite photograph that was taken um, at some point during the war. And it was published in Detroit, Michigan by the composer. Detroit had a very active musical publishing life as well. 
For those who could not afford the parlor piano, printers throughout the North and South issued ballads on single sheets of paper. These ballads are part of what Alice Foz has called a patriotic culture. One collector during the Civil War estimated that 2,000 different songs were published about the war, and I promise not to show you 2,000. <laughs> Often illustrated with a notation of a popular tune, the broadside ballad format brought music to the home and to the front and to the streets of cities. Often the illustrations, such as the one on the flag of our union, brought the life of the military camp to the home front. The refrain of this poem, written by George P. Morris, reads, The union of lakes, the union of lands, the union of states, none can sever. The union of hearts, the union of hands, the flag of the union forever and ever. Um, at the Antiquarian Society, we have about 500 ballads about the Civil War, in addition to 100 poems or so presented as single sheets. So, and there are more here at the Historical Society. The Library Company of Philadelphia has a vast collection in their McAllister um, holdings. So there's a lot of this stuff around. Thematically, these um, ballads include expressions of boundless enthusiasm for the war at the outset, narratives of battles from the, fort, from the fall of Fort Sumter to the surrender of Appomattox, Appomattox and the capture of Jefferson Davis. Um, they also portray the sentiments of those at home, the experience of soldiers in camp, battles in prisons, and, of course, eulogies for the dead. An example of a patriotic song is Rally Round the Flag or the Stars and Stripes, written by the publisher of the Atlantic Monthly, James T. Fields. Um, the so chorus of We've a Million in the Field, written and composed by Stephen Foster in 1862, reads... We have a million in the field, a million in the field. While our flag is slighted with hearts united, we can bring a million more to the field. So if a million men from the north aren't enough, we'll come up with another million. So this, but this song expresses overall the point of view that the war would not last um, for much longer. And, and I think I see a decrease in the production of these rather positive, patriotic um, images um, as the war goes on. It, there was clearly um, fatigue. Battle narratives include our American banner by Orlando Libby that describes the opening moments of the war when the flag of South Carolina replaced the American flag at Sumter. The author set his text to the popular patriotic song, Columbia's Gem of the Ocean was my brother slain in battle, again by Foster, refers to the Battle of Bull Run, during which the Confederates pushed the army back, Union Army back to Washington. This battle scene, um, although very small, you'll see some of these ballads later, um, the image is tiny, but it reflects the, um, I think, state of chaos that was in effect. The naval battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack um, lasted five hours, the image on this ballad is based on a design by Fanny Palmer, published by Courier and Ives, and the same um, competition, uh, composition is on the pictorial cover of a piece of sheet music, the Monitor Grand March, composed by E. Mack and published in Philadelphia. Uh, the borrowing of pictorial compositions was a very common um, phenomenon and not particularly looked down upon, so you'll see similar compositions appearing in multi- media. Um, 
Oh Jeff, oh Jeff, how are you now? Celebrates the end of the war and the capture of Davis, who either was or, not, or was not dressed as a woman. I think <laughs> not, but. Um, Charles Magnus published this song sheet, um, that, and it advertises. These things often um, carry multiple mes messages. This was also published as a piece of sheet music, and this ballad sheet car carries an advertisement for the music score. Um, published by Firth, Son, and Company. There are numerous songs written from a maternal um, perspective, even if the author is a man. For example, we have A Mother's Hymn in Time of War, written by William Ross Wallace, who found success in New York as a lawyer and poet. Among his publications was The Liberty Bell, a book of militant poems upholding the Union. Charles Sawyer's poem... Um, is written from the perspective of a mother dreaming about angels hovering over her son on the battle plane. So you get kind of mixed um, perspectives. Um, Your blessing, dearest mother, is written from the perspective of a soldier parting from his family. Um, and... Again, there's um, sheet music that's related to it. Uh, the soldier writing this song encourages his mother to, quote, be cheerful, be hopeful, and calm, should you hear I fell on the battlefield. Let a lord's kiss me, mother, kiss your darling is an example of a text written from the dying soldier's point of view. And this music sheet was published in San Francisco where the publisher, T.C. Boyd, advertised that he had 10,000 songs and 2,000 plays in stock for sale. I don't think he means 10,000 different songs. I think he means hundreds of copies of a given text, etc. Music was part of the soldier's experience. William Howell Reed recounted that a female nurse sang just before the battle mother to soldiers in a hospital ward. He wrote, nearly every man had raised himself on his elbow to catch these notes. Some were wiping their eyes and others, too weak to move, were hiding their emotion, which still was betrayed by the quivering lip and the single tear as it fell but was not wiped away. The publisher, located in Washington, noted at the foot of the sheet, soldiers can receive 14 songs for 50 cents, 50 for $1, sent by mail, postage-free to all parts of the army. Tramp, tramp, tramp. The Prisoner's Hope features a view of uh, the notorious Libby Prison in Richmond, um, probably based on a photograph. Um, so this song was published in 1864 and was m one of the most popular during the war. The song served a dual purpose, to give hope to both imprisoned soldiers that they would be freed and to their families at home that the war would soon end. The war ended too soon for too many soldiers. The first casualty was Colonel Elmarie Ellsworth, who was shot as he tried to remove a Confederate flag from the Marshall Inn in Alexandria. And here you have um, two pieces of sheet music dedicated to his memory. There were also um, illustrated patriotic envelopes, straightforward portrait prints, um, so a lot of ephemera and then ballads about him as well. The drummer of Antietam mourns the death of a drummer boy, um, but in fact the author 
Eugene Johnston doesn't even include the name of the drummer boy in the poem, but we do know it was Charles King, and he died at the age of 12 in this bloodiest of battles. He was supposed to be safe behind the lines, and that's the only reason his parents allowed him to go as a drummer, but he got caught and, and died. Um, he was hit by shrapnel, and actually he died in the field hospital where Clara Barton worked. John Ross Dix's The Drummer Boy's Farewell um, marks the death of a different drummer on a southern battlefield, since there's a reference in this text to um, magnolias in bloom. Again, the name of the deceased drummer boy is not recorded, but the text reiterates the sense of the glory of dying for a cause. And then there are a couple of um, sort of eulogies published. Oh, well, we have over 100, I guess. Um, A.W. Harmon's... Oh, I'm sorry. This was... Yeah, A.W. Harmon's song was composed in 1863, and this was composed in printed probably for performance at Barry's funeral um, in Rockland, Maine. And then another broadside printed also in Maine commemorates the death of Charles Bowden, who died at Salisbury Prison in North Carolina. And this trip, this um, tribute begins with the image of his mother sitting at home. And it's interesting, and... Um, Alice Foz again notes in her book that even though civilian fathers at home mourn the deaths of their sons, I mean, there were fathers who were too old to go to war, they very seldom appear in this sentimental um, literature or imagery. And we're going to look very briefly at just um, a few um, patriotic envelopes, and we'll see some more examples um, in the library Stephen Boyd's book is terrific, and I hadn't known about it, actually, until I was preparing for this, and happily we had a copy at work, and it's just a terrific text. Um, he focuses mainly on the iconography and the subject matter of the envelope decorations, and he notes that more than 15,000 different covers, both in the Union and the Confederacy, were printed. One of the major publishers of envelopes was also active in selling ballads, and you've seen his name on the uh, screen. Uh, um, SC, well, let me go back, because this is kind of fun. S.C. Upham, um, who issued this um, broadside advertisement, actually, um, he advertised uh, this design featuring Jefferson Davis going to and returning from the war in 1861. And he notes on this advertisement that he's going to be selling letter sheets for a penny apiece and envelopes for one half that price. So you could get two envelopes for a penny. Charles Magnus, who did this um, view on an envelope of Alexandria, had his printing office in New York. And midway through the war, he opened a sales outlet in Washington to facilitate shipping his letter sheets and envelopes to military cup, uh, camps. He was born in Prussia in 1826, arrived in New York in 1848, and became a consummate, consummate businessman and got his products to the front where they were needed. And subsequently, elef uh, the envelopes found a market among collectors. In 1862, one writer commented, 
Curious collectors have accumulated a great variety of specimens of those illustrated envelopes, and the time will come when such collections will be examined with the utmost interest by antiquaries, desirous of getting a glimpse of the feeling and humors of our times as they were displayed during the great civil war of the Western continent. What a remarkable jumble of patriotism, sentiment, humor, and animosity does such a collection present. On one letter sheet issued early in the war, Magnus advertised that he planned to present a set of 250 designs. All 250 could be um, obtained either hand-colored or printed in purple, blue, or green inks. Retail prices range from $1.75 to $2 per hundred. At the same time, those were the letter sheets. At the same time, he advertised he had a 1,000 different union envelopes representing views of cities, public buildings, state arms, maps, portraits, etc. And I'm just going to show you um, a couple of slides of these envelopes, um, and you'll see some more in the library. So you saw Alexandria, Virginia. The one on the top is the movement of the army from Washington to Richmond. This is number six in a series of 12 images. So he's kind of projecting um, the interest of collectors as he's issuing these. Uh, the middle object is a camp scene taken from a photograph rather than a sketch artist's work. And then below is um, Battle at Millspring, Kentucky. Then we have General George McClellan, and then a tribute to three fallen soldiers, Colonel Edward Baker, Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, and Nathaniel um, Lyon. Um, Boyd's book is terrific, and coming out from winter tour um, mm, late this year is Richard McKinstry's book on Charles Magnus, and in that he goes into some detail on the production of the ballad sheets as well as the envelopes. Um, when thinking about the flood of pictorial material, I think it's important for us to try to become viewers of the 19th century. In connection with today's presentation, I've been thinking about the anxiety of wartime, recalling how my mother experienced my older brother's three years of service in the Navy during the Vietnamese War. He was in relatively safe waters off of Da Nang, but that knowledge did little to alleviate my mother's fears. Fortunately for her, my brother was an excellent correspondent, probably reflecting the amount of downtime he had on his hands, which was something similar, of course, during the Civil War. Like women in the Civil War, she lived for his letters. Her experience, I think, was certainly parallel to the anxieties of Civil War mothers, sisters, and wives. And I, I say this, I think these prints really try to respond to um, the need for patriotic um, iconography during a time of war, I think some of the images um, really needed to comfort those on the domestic front. Um, hence, the Courier and Ives lithographs are less graphic than the photographs. I think Matthew Brady's harsh, vivid photographs must have been devastating to um, those at home. They could have only increased the fears. The battle prints treated death lightly, yet those were dead bodies on the ground. These prints were memorials, patriotic, informative, even optimistic at times. I think they speak to the common experience of a nation at war, 
given the amount of pictorial material, not to mention text, no one could avoid knowledge of what was going on. In this way, all the visual material you have seen and will continue to see this week contributed to a shared participation of war, whether on the home front, in ships blockading southern ports, in military camps, or on the battlefield. And that's it. That was kind of long. Very <laughs>